don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the feminist comic strip from Guantanamo to your relationship with Sarah Merck. Today my guest is uh, Sarah Merck, who's uh, uh, the online editor at Beach Magazine and uh, a journalist, and uh, she's also doing the, the podcast of uh, uh, taking care of the podcast of uh, Beach Magazine, if I'm not mistaken, which is uh, uh, which will give you a measure a, m- a measurement uh, of how uh, how speaking well on our podcast <laughs> will be compared to me. <laughs> uh, hello, Sarah. Hi. Uh, um, so we're going to talk about a few things uh, uh, today, uh, some of it being more uh, related to, to Beach Magazine and some others will be more specific to your own work. Uh, as a, maybe as an introduction, could you, could you tell us a little bit uh, what uh, Beach Magazine has been doing for the last uh, 20 years, is that right? You're almost right, 17 yeah. years. 17. Yeah, so Beach is a national feminism and pop culture magazine. So we write about pop culture, TV, movies, music. Uh, from a feminist standpoint, and that means looking at gender dynamics as well as race, class, sexuality, economic impacts, a, 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 a large variety of issues um, in pop culture. And uh, the magazine is a quarterly print publication that's been around for 17 years. It started out as a zine, as the founders just wanting to write about what they're seeing on TV and what they're seeing in movies. and You know, it can get pretty depressing watching TV and watching movies these days and just being like, oh, this is also <laughs> dumb. This is also pointless. And they were thinking, instead of changing the channel, we want to help make pop culture better. Mm-hmm. So in their basement in San Francisco, they started this little zine. They just photocopied and stapled and gave out to people called Bitch. And since then, it's become a national magazine. We have about 15,000 readers of each issue and a website that gets about 15,000 people every day. And a podcast that has about 30,000 listeners. Um, and we've been writing about feminism and pop culture ever since. Hmm. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, this generation of feminism is, uh, is very much willing to integrate every, every uh, aspect of uh, societal uh, uh, characteristics, such as, I mean, you mentioned uh, race and social class and everything. So how, how does all that uh, articulate? Um, A lot of people these days, I mean, a lot of people think about feminism, they just think, um, you know, it's about raising up women, mm-hmm. or in the worst case scenario, it's about hating men. Yeah. You know, that's that's the line I get when I go to a party and I introduce myself to people, oftentimes the response I get is, oh, you work for a feminist magazine, do you hate men? And okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not what we're talking about here. Like we, we see, fe- the, and the way that I describe the kind of work that Fitch does to drunk people who think I hate men mm-hmm. is I say that feminism is about recognizing the rules of our society and articulating them and figuring out which ones to break. And so that means the rules around the way that you're supposed to act because of your gender, the way that you're taught and expected to act all the way from when you're young um, to the rules around sexuality, to the rules around... <sighs> how our economy works and who it benefits and who it doesn't, to the rules around race and the assumptions that we make about race. 
So it's recognizing those roles and just being able to name them and then being able to talk about them and then trying to figure out which ones are screwed up and we should try and do away with. So yeah. that's, that's what I see as, as the kind of feminism that I'm interested in promoting and that bitch really works at. And so we don't just write about gender issues. It's not just a girl power kind of message. It's a, hey, let's talk about oppression. Let's talk about the way that our society works mm -hmm. and how that's shown through our media. It's quite symptomatic to see that some people would be so much relating everything to men that they would even think that feminism would be somehow relating against to men by saying it's it's men hatred, right? Yeah, I think I think that that happens all the time. Yeah, um, that happens constantly, yeah. and you know, it's you can see it in, in celebrities talking about it. Just today, this a woman named Shailene Woodley, who's starring in the blockbuster Divergent, was talking about how she's not a feminist because she likes men. <laughs> And I mean, and she's young. She's, I think she's in her early 20s and she's like a hippie, progressive LA person who like, you know, is really interested in organic foods and you'd think that she'd have a better understanding of what feminism means and what talking about oppression in our society means, but she doesn't because this isn't the kind of stuff that Americans talk about very easily at all. Well, I, I suppose every every nations have, uh, are not quite yet where they should be, so I don't think it's necessarily just specific to the, to the US, but... Um, so I mean, in, in general, I, I I invite everyone to to look at their, to look at uh, at Beach website, which is also so which divides uh, its uh, so Beach in general divides its work between uh, as a website and their their magazine as well. Yeah, I mean yeah. the the magazine, like I said, comes out four times a year, mm -hmm. and there's really big in depth long articles in there, um, and. Those go to subscribers, or you can you can buy on newsstands, but it's better if you subscribe. But yeah, it comes out four times a year, and those are like really big, awesome, groundbreaking articles mm -hmm. that we publish in there. Um, and then, but then every day online for free, we publish uh, one to three articles every day. Yeah. And so you can you can re you can buy the magazine online, and you can read all the articles online if you're up for buying it. Um, but if you don't want to buy it, or you can't for some reason, we have one to three articles a day for free online, and that varies. I mean, we do. Um, film reviews of films that just came out. We do more off, um, more quick news analysis. So we're writing about political stuff that's happened this week and issues in the media that have happened this week, um, as well as stuff that requires visuals that are hard to do in the magazine. We publish a lot of comics, a lot of web comics, and um, those kinds of things that are visual heavy that you know you would need. It would be hard to publish in the magazine. Mm -hmm. Well, and the the comic is something you're particularly uh, uh, sensitive to, aren't you? Because you're you you even draw some of them yourself, right? Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, I I grew up reading comics myself, and um, really seeing their power as a medium, and also just how they're a lot of fun to mm -hmm. read. And so uh, these days, I do um, I've also I write and edit nonfiction comics in addition to the work I do at Bitch, where I work with a bunch of different artists at Bitch making nonfiction comics usually so right now for example we have a series by an artist called erica moen called oh joy sex toy where every week she reviews a different sex toy or some different aspect of sexuality um that's an awesome series mm. and that's the kind of thing we you publish. did the history of this of the of the dildo right yeah uh -huh, uh, yeah there's a comic um by a woman named by a woman named emmy guinness that's um, in that series that's about the history of the vibrator. Mm. And it's really fun. Not, it's great none of which I was aware of. <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah. It's, a really, it's a really weird, strange history. I love it. Um, but in addition to that, I published my own comics. Um, I did a series about Oregon history, about little-known and marginalized stories in Oregon's past. 
it's like a series of 10 comics with 10 different artists in, in Portland um, that came out a couple years ago. So that was looking at everything from just stories people I, people my age I thought wouldn't know in Portland since this is a city of uh, transplants. People who are not from here outnumber people who are from here. Hmm. And a lot of people don't ever learn the history of the city when they move here. So, for example, one comic was about the history of Portland's Black Panther Party. One comic was about... Um, uh, sort of this big flood that wiped out a big a big neighborhood called Vanport here. Just stuff that people should know when they think about when they're living here. Mm-hmm. So that's a series of those comics. Um, and, you know, it's exciting to do history writing in that medium because people will pick it up that would never go out and pick up a big, dense history book or maybe go to a history museum. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with the comics that we do online for Bitch is that they bring in a whole different audience of people who, you know, Maybe aren't going to sit down or check a book out from the library that's called The History of the Vibrator, but when they can read it in five minutes online and it's presented in a really interesting way. Comics are an awesome way to bring in new audiences and present engaging work and and ideas in a cool, fun, exciting manner. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, there's one, one of them that you did that I wanted to talk in particular, which is uh, um, looking... Which, which are based on interviews we've been doing with um, uh, female veterans of the U.S. Navy uh, who uh, had spent time in, their, in Guantanamo Bay in, their, in the Camp Delta. Uh, was it in Camp Delta? Actually, I'm not even sure. Mm, I don't think it was Camp Delta. I forget the name of the camp they yeah. were in. Well, in one of the, one of the camps of Guantanamo yeah. where uh, uh, I was particularly interested in, in this um in this uh, series you did because it complexifies or uh, it complexifies the front of struggles I suppose that we can think about I mean the, the most obvious one is simply to uh, uh, um, simply to make uh, uh, Barack Obama's uh, uh, promise to close Guantanamo happening which uh, it's still not have been happening uh, uh, but but actually within within this uh, narrative there is a there is a, a complexity that uh, uh, also look at um, well in that case uh, the, the soldiers that are involved on site and how uh, in particular when they're when they're women how how they are uh, uh, when they have their own uh, identity their own story and their own uh, uh, personal struggle and God knows in that woman in the US Army and actually in the French Army as well uh, uh, as their women have um, are very often the victims of of, uh, of uh, verbal or physical uh, aggressions, so that that's something that your your comic actually uh, uh, translate extremely well because because we can see how uh, uh, I for, I forgot her name but uh, the the first one you've been interviewing uh, is is filling is filling on the one on the one side this uh, this sort of systematic. Uh, uh, Oppression and military, and on the other side, she feels she's being part of this system of, uh, of Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay that she she uh, part, she seems to partially disagree, or at least in the, in the means that she disagree. Uh, and and also, it's also interesting to see how uh, people also get uh, join the army because uh, it's ne- it's sometimes just as simple as we imagine, which is like uh, they're being patriotic and they they want to join the army sometimes. Sometimes they're very young as well. I mean, and and uh, in the case of this specific woman, she uh, joined the army because she wanted to escape from her uh, from from her relationship. Uh, so, 
I, I suppose I'm sorry I'm being very long, but uh, I think it's important to to kind of note this this complexity and this multiplicity of of uh, uh, struggles uh, within uh, within this particular situation. Could could you maybe tell us more about that? Yeah. So this is a this comic about female veterans who served in Guantanamo is called Declassified, and it's a 16-page full-color comic that was originally published in a magazine called Symbolia. And this comic came about in part because I think one of the big problems we have with talking about Guantanamo in the United States is that it's hard to think about it as a real place. Hmm. You know, you see it in the headlines, or it comes up every once in a while on news reports, but it's hard to visualize it as actually... Hmm. A place that exists where people live and where people have been detained without trial hmm. for over 10 years. It's not a real legal It doesn't place. feel real. It doesn't yeah. feel real. It feels so surreal and so hmm. impossible. And at, at a legal point of view, it's not real, basically. Yeah, as from a legal point of view, it doesn't, it's, it's a made up, <laughs> it's like a, it's a legal loophole, essentially. Hmm. But it's an actual place yeah. with actual people who have been living there for over a decade and who have been including uh, military personnel who have been serving there and men who have been imprisoned there. And I was interested in trying to make this distant, strange, abstract, fuzzy place real. I wanted to paint a picture of it so people could pick up a copy of this comic and say, this is what this place looks like. It's a real place on the map with people living there. And that's something you can do with comics is, is such a powerful visual medium is that you can pick it up and you can see the images and you can say, wow, that's what this place looks like. Now you have a mental picture in your mind of it being an actual location with actual people. And so I had done some work on Guantanamo issues and a woman named Laura Sandow, uh, who lives here in Portland, found me online and found a, some, issues, some articles I'd written about Guantanamo. And she asked me out for coffee and she had served in Guantanamo returned and had enrolled in college and you know was trying to start her life over after joining the military to get out of this bad relationship she was in uh, where she didn't have any money she didn't have a lot of options and she basically needed a way out and the military provided that she joined the navy and she was sent to guantanamo and she served there for a little while and when she came back to try and start her life again and go to college she just didn't know what to do with that experience it was so Upsetting, and the stuff that she'd seen, the stuff that she'd been a part of, and the fear that she had from serving there, and the way that she felt about her experience was so upsetting that she didn't know what to make of it. And it was just this sort of doom cloud hanging over her head that she couldn't make sense of. And so we decided that it would be helpful for her to try and take this big, messy experience and make it into a narrative that she could share with other people, make it into a story she could tell that she could lay it out in one long line and say, okay, this is what happened to me and this is what it means. And so she and I, so I first interviewed her and then she and I together interviewed another veteran. And then I took those interviews and made them into this script that she read over and approved and did some work on. And then an artist named Lucy Bellwood drew that script into being this beautiful comic. And it was really, really powerful for her to be able to talk about her experience and see it made into a story rather than this raw, complicated, messy thing that doesn't make any sense. Now she has this narrative she can tell people and mm. a comic book she can hand them when they say, when they ask what happened to her in the military. Mm. And yeah, it does deal, it wound up dealing, the comic deals with issues around um, what Guantanamo is and how it works 
as well as what it feels like to be part of an organization that's doing stuff you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. You know, when you sign up to be in the military, you're signing up for a whole raft of sort of, of just following orders. What happens when you don't agree with the orders that you're following through on? And um, also just the daily pressures of being a woman in the military and both the discrimination in the military and the, the physical fear of assault. And sometimes the uh, actualization of assault. Uh, yeah. Very mm-hmm. often. So. Yeah, so one of the women in the comic is is assaulted at one point, and it's a really brutal moment that I didn't expect to see coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I went into the project just interested in whatever they wanted to talk about, and what came up was, was sexual assault. Yeah, and the, the, the figures of their of, of uh, reported, and I insist on the word reported, uh, assault in the U.S. military are absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't, don't, because... Because justice is happen is supposed to happen somehow in in an internal uh, means, it, it does not really it does not really work, and and therefore there is also this fear of, of not even reporting uh, uh, the potential assaults that uh, women have been uh, the victim of. Yeah, in this case, the wom- the woman who was assaulted um, didn't report it because she was worried about having to take a toxicology test. You know, she was drugged, and she was worried that they would test her for drugs after she reported it and then she might be discharged because if she tested positive she would be kicked out mm. also because there's just a whole culture of shame and fear around that mm. but anyway um, she didn't report it but doing the comic was helpful to her I think okay so that comic was initially published by a magazine called Symbolia that's a women run nonfiction comics magazine it's really great they do they do comics journalism and then um, we printed a couple print copies of it so that so that the um, women who were interviewed could give them to people that they wanted to have read it, who wouldn't necessarily read something online. And then a, a couple copies just got bought by the local library. So now you can go read it at the library, which is really great. Nice. And I suppose there's, there's one particular moment that struck me in the, in the first testimony, uh, uh, which is something we don't really realize either, is that Guantanamo used to be a Navy uh, a military basis, but not, not a... Uh, um, incarceration mm-hmm. uh, center so the, uh, this uh, this woman used to serve there when it before it was uh, uh, before it became the incarceration center that we all know and there is a, there is a kind of turning point uh, where she described a relatively uh, relatively uh, calm and, and almost banal but uh, uh, service before uh, it turned into this detention center and and when when actually the the first prisoners arrive, she's being she's being uh, uh, um, like she has she has this uh, probably this marine or I don't know who who's aiming a gun at her uh, in the street because she she was there when they're and and there is an in, interesting complexity in there in the fact that you would you would find a, a soldier aiming at another soldier. I mean, there's a sort of set of hierarchies that is also present, and that's not to say that she she is. Uh, uh, that there are there are uh, bad guys and victims and 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 but more than everyone is kind of entangled within a system of uh, a system of responsibilities where uh, uh, so I I don't know it's I'm, I'm describing only two or three cases I think in the entire comics but uh, <laughs> for some reason they were particularly uh, striking to me yeah her, it's, a, it's powerful to hear somebody describe that kind of experience and especially because what it reminds me of is that when she was living on the base 
it feels just like um, sort of a normal, boring, small town. Mm. If you've ever been to a military base, um, I have some family in the military, and they it just sort of feels like a suburban town. You know, there's daily routines, and there's shopping centers at, at Guantanamo. There's, like, a McDonald's, and I think there's, like, a Pizza Hut. There's chain stores. And so the majority of people that live there are just doing normal military work where they're, like, going and working at a computer all day going to the grocery store, going home. And that's what we're all doing in the United States. You know, we live our sort of warring lives. We don't have to think about this war on terror that we're waging or the people that we're detaining or the CIA black sites. But for, for her, for, for the woman who's, who I interviewed, Laura, it really hits home that she is an, is an intricate part of our system of war and detention because when she goes on a run in the morning, she can look out and see detainees being held. When she goes to the grocery store and she comes out at one point, you know, um, an office, a, a military person pulls a machine gun on her and says, freeze. And that really shakes her up and says, oh, yeah, like right next door, there's these guys being held and our nation's at war. And so it kind of reminded me of how I go about my day and not thinking about the wars that we're waging or the people that we're detaining. It can get pretty sleepy. And then so to be shaken out of that by somebody aiming a gun at you, I think. Is a powerful experience. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe to talk about uh, another part of the, the work you've been doing in the past, but that's mm-hmm. not completely uh, unrelated. You've been teaching playwriting in a, in a prison or uh, earlier in your life. Could you maybe describe us a little bit uh, what? Sure. What this is? I went to a, um, I attended a liberal arts college in Iowa called Grinnell College. And it's a social justice-focused college. People do a lot of social justice kind of work. And probably the best thing I did in college was get involved with teaching in a prison in a medium-maximum men's facility like half an hour away from town. It was great, and it was a really rare, rare opportunity where the librarian at the prison set up this program with students at the college where students wanted to do work in prison. And she set up a system where we could come into the library, the prison library, and teach a liberal arts style class to inmates. And so um, it was really wonderful. Like I taught a bunch of different classes. So it was all student-led classes that weren't for college credit. They were just interesting classes that people who were on good behavior could take. So everything from history to um, writing to poetry, and then I also taught playwriting. And that was really popular where the guys would write short plays over the first half of the semester, so five or ten minute plays, sort of mostly funny stuff, like one was about like sort of um, a remake of the Tooth Fairy fairy tale, like so there's a Tooth Fairy but he's actually a robber and he breaks into people's houses and he's going for money and says he's a Tooth Fairy. That kind of like funny weird stuff. One was an entire, the story of Robin Hood but all in rap. It was great. (laughs) Those kind of those kind of funny stories and then they would be acted out by students would come into the prison and act them out for for all the guys that wanted to come see them and then students would also act them out on campus and that was an awesome experience because both because a lot of the students who would come to see it on campus would have no I don't have an idea of what like what prisoners are like you know there's a real divide and we have a real idea in our culture of like people who are in prison are like tough and nasty and gnarly and like not to be trusted and like are not humans and 
the the rea- it's that's not true. <laughs> so to to be able to go and see a play that's written by somebody who's in prison really breaks down that dehumanization and breaks down that idea that they're not worth listening to. Mm-hmm. Well, especially in a country that has a one percent rate of incarceration for its entire population, right? It's mm-hmm. like one 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 percent out of a hundred in this country is actually a current inmate. Like yeah, I mean, we have. I was just looking at the statistics, and we have the highest rate of incarceration of any country in the world, and yet we have a real. In contrary to that, there's like a real sort of image, and the whole system is built up to dehumanize people who are in prison. And to make it seem like they're not worth listening to, they're not worth talking to, we should write them off. And even after they... Yeah, you know, even after they get out, it's really hard to find jobs, it's really hard to get housing, they're not allowed to vote in a lot of states. And so, um, there's a whole thing, you know, there's that whole image that's built up of like, saying these people are less than human. Mm -hmm. So it was powerful to have them write stuff that they could then, that then college students could go and see and say, hey, this sounds like something I might write, or something my friends might write, or... I'm la- to laugh at a joke that somebody in prison has written. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. And then we could also take, it's also hard, I think, in prison for the guys to make something that's valuable, to make something that's good. You know, they don't have a lot of tools. You're not even allowed, like, scissors. So it's hard to make art in prison. And so for them to write these plays that then could be performed and they could show them off and be proud of them, it was, really, it was a really great experience to be able to help these guys make something that they were proud of. Mm-hmm. And beyond the beyond the, the institutions that the prison is, I don't know if institution is the right word, but beyond beyond the the sort of immateriality of prison, do you did you feel that the space itself was ha- having a strong influence on the on the content of what was created? Well, a lot of what dictated what the plays could be about is that it couldn't mention any kind of issue about prison conditions. It couldn't be about being in prison. Um, that was off. That was not allowed. And it couldn't have any kind of sexuality references or any kind of violence. So when you think about the world of what you can write about, if you can't write about your current life, you can't write about sex, and you can't write about violence, uh, it leaves a very narrow world, mm-hmm. and that world is fantasy. And so that's why a lot of the stories were really just fun fantasy fairy tales, essentially. Sort of escapist stuff. And... Um, you know, and you could work in some jokes there, you could work in some ideas there, but um, there was not a lot of direct commentary on the system, I think in a large part, because, you know, the um, people in charge of the prison are reading everything that they're writing, and if they write something bad, they would get in serious trouble for it. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was one case in my class where a guy did write sort of a satirical condemnation of, of prison issues. It was about, the, they don't turn the lights off, they never turn the lights off. Mm-hmm. So it was about somebody being really upset about them never turning the lights off. And he was like pulled out of the class and got in trouble for it. And in that situation, it, it seemed like it just wasn't worth it for them, you know, to do that. They get, like, one nice thing that they get to do is to come to this class and talk to somebody who treats them like a real human and to hang out with each other and talk about art. So to put that on the line, to write something that's directly satirical of their situation, I think is probably not worth it. Mm-hmm. But now it's great. The program has expanded. I graduated six years ago. And since I graduated, the program's expanded, and now um, they get actual college credit for taking the classes, and they're taught by professors as well as students. Um, so there's not a lot of... Most sort of prison programs in the, in the country are run by religious groups. So it's cool to have colleges. Grinnell is one, and then um, 
I think Bard is another um, that are doing prison teaching programs, and mm-hmm. they're they're really great. And I, we need seven thousand more of them, I think. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, Bitch has been writing actually quite a bit about uh, this uh, Netflix series, Orange is the oh, yeah, New Orange Black. Is the new black with, yeah. with what was interesting about it, what was problematic about it. I mean, namely uh, the fact that apparently we absolutely needed a, a, a white main character to mm-hmm. start with, but. But there's been there's been some uh, interesting things going on uh, around uh, around this series, didn't it? Yeah, and I'm excited. The second season starts up really soon, and it's it's a great show for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, one that it does it <clears throat> it really shines a light on on prison conditions and talks about people in prison and has the focus be on on inmates in a way that really I think humanizes mm-hmm. them. Female you know, inmates. Yeah, and, and female great. inmates. Yeah. We're talking um, for an international uh, oh, Okay, so uh, yeah, so this, this show is called Orange is the New Black. Um, it's based on a memoir of the same title of a woman, a white, like a white blonde kind of upper middle class lady who went to prison for two years um, for drug trafficking. And she wrote this memoir about it that um, basically was like, to my surprise, people in prison were really interesting and creative and we like had a lot in common and... Um, and the system is absolutely sucks and is terrible mm-hmm. and doesn't help people at all to become better people. The idea that prisons in our country are meant to rehabilitate people to make them better citizens is is complete is is just that's not happening. People are in prison and they're coming out in worse shape than they went in because they have trouble finding jobs. They've been they've been dehumanized for two years, you know. Anyway, so so, so the memoir is about that and the show. Um, is really fun. It stars all, it's like an all-female cast, and it's rare to see so many different women on TV, and a lot of them are sort of unknown actresses who aren't, who aren't that famous and are being given a shot to be on TV, and it's mm-hmm. Netflix, it's a Netflix original series. Mm-hmm. And the first season was just super popular. So I'm excited to see, with all the discussion of prison, and just like being able to see a bunch of actresses in really complex, fun, exciting roles. Yeah. You know, a lot of what we write about a bitch is how female characters can often be fit into like one of a dozen tropes and they're really flat and they're not interesting and all the female characters look the same in blockbuster movies and they don't get to say that much. And you know, all this like women get less screen time, women get to make fewer jokes, women don't have as interesting characters. So to see a show like Orange is the New Black come along where when we get a lot of screen time, they're playing lots of really interesting, cool, fun roles. It's just great. Hmm. And um, I hope it inspires more shows to be like it. Yeah. And I, I suppose that, that really, that really uh, uh, takes on the, the, the medium itself of the, of the TV shows that can kind of extend on several hours uh, on, on the contrary of like a, a traditional film. And, and it, really gives a, it really gives a time to create, to construct... Uh, complex uh, complex personalities and and maybe even go back to as flashback to why why those women are um, are in prison why very often it's it's really uh it's really being at the bad place at the bad time at the wrong place wrong time mm-hmm. and um yeah for, for this reason i feel it's it's also very uh, uh constructive for that matter yeah it's cool on netflix they have the ability to just have shows be hours and hours long mm. And um, they're not tied to sort of the regular constraints of television. Yeah. They're sort of assuming people are going to watch them in order, like stream them online and just watch them you know, in one big dump. 
Um, so I think that leads to more complicated storylines where they where they hope you can follow these different stories as they go through, rather than being like, like you know, having to be like, here's what happened last week, or keep it simple. Yeah, mm. I'm excited for the second season. Yeah. Um, I, I know your time is precious, so uh, we will conclude very soon. But there, uh, but um, maybe just to conclude, we can talk about your your one of the most recent projects you've been working on, which is this uh, this uh, this new book uh, uh, that you wrote. That's called uh, Sex from Scratch. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about it? Because that's, yeah, yeah, it's called Sex from Scratch: Making Your Own Relationship Rules, and it's a relationship guidebook with sort of with a DIY and feminist ethos. And it comes out of whenever I have trouble in my relationships, when I'm dating people and I don't know what to do, mm. I want to find a book to read about it because that's the way that I deal with problems is I read books about them. And when you, but when you look at the books that are out there in the relationship section, they're just terrible. And they're all like how to snag a man and get married to him. And I am not that goal-oriented about relationships. I just want to be happy and healthy mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what that looks like. And that's very heteronormative to start with, right? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if it means, you know, my, my goal is not to snag a man and get married. My goal is to like be happy and healthy, whatever that looks like. And so I didn't, so this is the, so I couldn't find a book. So I decided to write my own. And for about two years, I um, interviewed people about their relationships, including what the relationships look like and how they make decisions and what they've learned the hard way as they've gotten older in relationships. And it's basically, doing this book project is just an excuse to be curious about people and ask them about their personal lives and put that into a book. And so the final title is Sex from Scratch, Making Your Own Relationship Rules, and it comes out in August, and it's eight different chapters about eight different types of relationships. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's a chapter on open relationships and non-monogamy. There's a chapter about people who think they're never going to have kids. There's a chapter about people who are never going to get married. Um, there's a chapter about people who are genderqueer and dating while being transgender or genderqueer. Um, there's a chapter about dating as a feminist and dealing with um, sort of oppression issues within relationships. And those chapters, which are based on dozens of anonymous interviews, are paired with like longer expert interviews on the topic. Mm -hmm. So hopefully people find it useful and helpful. And I, I think it speaks to an audience that is feeling really... that's Everyone's just sort of making things up as they go along right now. And all of my friends I know are trying to figure out what they want the relationships to look like and what feels good to them and there's not a lot of role models out there if you're not doing exactly what your parents did mm. well and also i feel that relationships are also uh not very uh considered within like academia for example like it's it's always it's always pushed back as like they're they're the more domestic uh domestic uh, realms that we should not really look into where when actually it's like it's it's a must when we talk about uh relationship and power within a, good, a given society mm -hmm. is like the, the, the uh, living in a couple or living in a in, in a relationship uh in general is the most immediate and maybe also because of that the most uh, uh, uh crucial uh relation where with those relationships of power mm -hmm. actually occurring isn't it yeah i mean it can feel frivolous to write about dating mm -hmm. to write about sex and love You know, I think people tend to write it off and it doesn't it doesn't feel like serious journalism. But these are the kind of, of actions and behaviors that most intimately affect our lives. And I know that the relationships that I have are what I want talking to my closest friends about and what are what impacts my my psychological ability to function day in, day out. And so 
I just think it is something that's really worth talking intensely about and thinking about and writing a book about and reading a book about. Um, you know, even though it doesn't feel like as serious an issue as, say, prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. It is important. But it, it really is, because that's, that's also, whenever we define a sort of ethics of how to behave in society, mm -hmm. we always think of it at, at our, let's put it that way, in our you know, best mood. Whereas mm -hmm. uh, in a relationship, sometimes we tire, sometimes mm -hmm. we, we let things go that, we, that does not exactly fit with the ethics systems that we, we thought about. So, so actually, that's, that's, where, that's where really the effort needs to, needs to happen within this, uh, to, to, to live up by the principles that we set for ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're nodding. You said it. <laughs> You're nodding. <laughs> All right. Well, Sarah, Sarah, thank you so much yeah, for thank you so taking much. the time to talk to me today and uh, to be the the Portland representative of the of this uh, West Coast uh, tour of podcast, <laughs> of however, course. however I call it. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Again. Yeah. Thank you for stopping by. Thanks.